Good morning. My name is Adam, uh, and I'm part of the Aurora's community group. Um, so this morning, I'm going to be reading out of Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Thank you, Adam. Hey, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. This is one of those texts that just kind of like, do this, God bless you, go home. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to continue our walk through Mark. Um, so don't think the application of this text is, hey, pay your taxes and then just check out and start thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. Uh, that is definitely a part of it, but we're going to dig pretty deeply into this this morning. So let me start with this. When I began thinking about planting a church, I was not thinking about planting a church in Odessa or in the Fundome. Uh, we started this process in 2016. We were planning on planting a church in DFW right off the campus of the University of Texas in Arlington. And one of the things that I prayed for was a church that was multi-ethnic and multi-generational. So when the Lord began to shift our plans and we started to focus on planting in Odessa, that prayer remained the same. God, give us a church that is multi-ethnic and multi-generational in Odessa. Now, by the Lord's grace, one of those prayers has been answered in, in plural, like there. It's been cool to see a multi-ethnic body come together and worship the Lord and, and I'm confident that we're going to grow in some more generational diversity, if you will, at some point in the future. But one of the unique challenges, uh, perhaps it's even a blessing, is that with any type of diversity in any sphere, be it race or gender or generational diversity or social diversity uh, and economic diversity, whatever it is, we all bring a different level of experience a different level of life experience to, to the table. Most of our lives, just looking around this room, most of our lives are vastly different from each other in struggle and in experience. And I think that's of supreme value for our church. Uh, there's a lot that we can learn from each other about life and about faith and about following Jesus and about perseverance in struggle as we pursue the Lord together. But my hope for this body is not that we are all the same, not that we all look the same, not that we all sound the same, not that we all worship the same, not that we vote the same, but that we're united in spite of our differences in our pursuit of Jesus and in our pursuit of the mission of Jesus in our community. If the only thing we have in common with one another is a saving faith in Christ, 
then we can move forward together in unity. And that is really good news for the church. So having said all of that, one thing is supremely clear. Regardless of how you feel or regardless of what you think about it, I think we can all agree at least on one thing. Our world, and specifically our country, is in a state of transition. Some of it seems to be good. Some of it doesn't seem to be good or helpful at all. And I try really hard as a practice, as I'm up here preaching on a Sunday morning, to not say anything super politically charged or super politically motivated, uh, because I don't want to isolate any of you. There are men pastoring churches in this town that push their own political ideology so hard from the pulpit that I think it would be really difficult to have any kind of civil disagreement in that church. Like, if I voted different from that pastor, I don't know if there's a safe space for me in that church. So I'm just really committed to unity and peace, especially around secondary and tertiary issues, uh, and that includes politics. But here's what I will say. There are some very real life-altering issues at stake for the Church of God in the West and for the family when one considers some of these changes, some of these shifts. So I just want to caution you, as a people who claim to be believers in Jesus, to submit your whole life to Jesus, not just your Sunday mornings. And when you are submitting your life to Jesus, submit your life to the authority of the Word of God on all matters, including your views on public policy and including your views on politics. And so I think today our text is really timely, given the shiftings that are taking place in and around our nation. So the question I think each of us has to wrestle with this morning is this. Should Christians obey the government? Should Christians obey the government and pay taxes even if we do not recognize the legitimacy of said government, even if we disdain its policies, or even if in some cases we are oppressed by said government? One commentator said it like this, Do we continue to feed the monster that is eating us? So I want to explore that this morning as we consider the person and work of Jesus today. So let's pray. Let's go before the Lord and just ask him to illuminate our hearts and minds this morning. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I'm really feeling the pull of um, what your word says about being a stranger and an exile. Lord, may we just land in that space. Lord, may we, as believers in you this morning, realize that this world is not our home, Lord, that we are destined for something better than this. And Lord, may we also just join you in mission. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. Show us our need for you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 12 Beginning in verse 13, it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. All right, so let's set up this scene uh, a little bit. This is during what is known as the Passover uh, 
in the Passion Week of Jesus. The Passion Week of Jesus is the week leading up to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And right before the cross takes place, we have the Passover celebration. Jews from all over the known world are in Jerusalem to make offerings for sin, as was the custom. Passover is a, is a celebration when the nation of Israel remembered the time when they were in slavery to Egypt. And after the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's continued refusal to let the Israelites go, that's in the book of Exodus, God sends one more plague upon the nation of Egypt. He told them he was going to kill all the firstborn sons in the land. But he also told the Israelites, if you were to take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, and spread some of its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your house, the Lord will strike down the firstborn of the nation of Israel. But when the Lord sees the blood on your doorways, the Spirit of the Lord would then pass over the house, thus saving those inside the houses where the blood was. So here's Jesus, knowing his mission, knowing his purpose, rides into town on a donkey to make his offering to God. Jesus is going to offer himself, but not for the pardon and forgiveness of his sins, but for the pardon and forgiveness for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Mark 11, where Jesus rides into town on the donkey to shouts of Hosanna. And then the crowd, after they've gathered themselves into a frenzy, immediately leave. They leave Jesus. This is called the triumphal entry, where Jesus rides into town, fulfilling the prophecies, and is essentially king for a day. That would be on a Sunday. Then the next day, on a Monday, he goes back to the temple and cleanses it of the money changers and those who are profiting and extorting people for monetary gain. And then two weeks ago, uh, Mark preached on Jesus' authority being questioned and challenged by the chief priests and the scribes. And then last week, Justin Smith preached about the parable of the tenants. That parable was specifically pointed to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Like these two texts that Mark preached and that Justin preached are taking place on a Tuesday. And so the implications for the last four weeks of text in our walk through Mark is this. The people, the Jewish nation, they are getting the Messiah that they are promised. But they're not getting the Messiah that they're wanting. Justin told us last week, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. And so after Jesus' activity on Sunday and Monday, uh, he has aroused the anger and frustration of the Jews in power. They're thinking to themselves, here's this guy, this unlearned rabbi. He's super popular, and he's turning people's influence, he's turning their affections away from us. We're losing our influence over society, and this just will not do. Mark chapter 12, 12 says that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of what the people would do if they arrested him. So now, still on a Tuesday, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are trying a different approach. Our text says that they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to trap him. They are trying to catch Jesus in some contradiction. This group, the Herodians and the Pharisees, this is like a really strange pairing. 
We've seen a lot of the Pharisees in our walk through Mark. They're always in conflict with Jesus. But there hasn't been given much attention to these guys, the Herodians. We've only seen them mentioned once in chapter 3, verse 6. So who are these guys? So the Herodians are the people who are loyal to the, the Jewish kings. All of these kings were named Herod. So we have Herod Agrippa, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, um, and a few others. Here's why this is a strange pairing. On the one hand, you have these Pharisees. These guys cared a lot about the law, a lot about following the letter of the law. They cared about religious appearance, appearances. They cared about being viewed as like good people by society. They wanted to be perceived as the standard of morality. Essentially, they wanted to be like good Jews. And then on the other hand, you have these Herodians. These guys were basically Jews in name only. Jews by birth, but not by practice. They didn't really follow the dietary customs. They didn't follow the laws concerning marriage or sex or alcohol. They were like the first century version of YOLO. Like, whatever I feel like doing right now, I'm going to do it. Um, that's how their leader functioned. So they were doing what the leader was doing. A few chapters back, we learned that one of the Herods took his brother's wife and made her to be his wife, which is illegal according to the Jewish law. It is the opposite of morality. And so you have these conservative Pharisees and these liberal Herodians, not in a political sense, but definitely in lifestyle, and they have teamed up together against Jesus. For the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat to their power in society. He was a threat to their religious power. And for the Herodians, Jesus was a threat to their lifestyle and their political agenda. And both parties were just offended by Jesus. So they've made an alliance. Three different commentaries I read on this passage, they all caution their readers to be wary of strange bedfellows. I had never heard that term before. What is a bedfellow? But it basically means when natural enemies all of a sudden become best friends. We need to be really cautious. We can naturally question motives and intentions. So here they are, these Pharisees, these Herodians, sent by the leaders of the Jewish people to come and spy out Jesus. The text says they tried to trap him. Look at what takes place. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and we know that you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Man, these groups that hate Jesus, they show up and they are turning on the charm. Lots of flattery. They call him, hey, teacher. Like, that's a designation of respect. But there's no respect here. They're trying to get Jesus to drop his guard so that they can catch him in his words. They tell him he's true. Jesus, you're true. You're truthful. And a few days later, they're going to crucify him as a blasphemer. Their flattery, although everything that they are saying is absolutely 100% true, their flattery is not sincere. And Jesus knows this. 
Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus the wisdom of God knows this. He sees right through it, and he will not be trapped. So they ask him this question, should we pay taxes? Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar, who is an authority over the government that is oppressing us? Jesus, should we, should we pay taxes to Rome, to the Romans? They've set their trap. This is a no-win situation for Jesus, because consider this. Jesus is asked a yes or no question. If Jesus answers yes, pay taxes... He is isolating an entire nation of people. He is isolating his people, the Jewish people, that are currently in captivity to the nation of Rome. And this nation is charging them taxes. The Jews hate the Romans. The Jews hate the Romans because they are oppressing them. So if Jesus says yes, the Jews will view Jesus as a traitor and completely turn on him. On the other hand, if Jesus says no, he would be guilty of insurrection against Rome, and then he'd have to be arrested by the Romans. So it appears they've got Jesus right where they want him. It looks like they've got him caught. But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. Jesus knows their flattery is not sincere, and he calls them on it. You hypocrites. He looks at them and says, I know what you're doing. They really couldn't care less about the issue of taxes. They are just trying to destroy Jesus. They're only devoted to Jesus' destruction. Interestingly enough, I thought this was interesting. Uh, in the Greek, the word that Jesus uses for test is the same word he uses when he's talking to Satan when he's being tempted in the wilderness. By confronting them in their testing, Jesus is ascribing to them something evil and something demonic. But he also doesn't run away from their question. He says, bring me a denarius. That's, a, that's like one day's wage. You go to work for a day, you pay it back in taxes. That's a one day's wage for a laborer. It was the imperial tax in the time of the Caesars. And Jesus asked for one because he doesn't have one. Some people suggest that Jesus and his disciples don't have the coin because they're poor. Others suggest that Jesus wanted the coin to come from the pockets of his own opponents to prove to the people watching that they actually are recognizing the legitimacy of Caesar's reign. Regardless of the positions, it doesn't really matter. Jesus gets a denarius and he says in verse 16, they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus says, who's on this coin? It's Caesar. So on one side of the coin, we have uh, the head of Caesar Tiberius, and on the other side, it pictures him seated on a throne. On one side, there was an inscription that read, Son of Divine Augustus, and then on the other side, it's uh, Pontificus Maximus, which means high priest. So by these inscriptions, Caesar is making some really bold claims. Number one, he's claiming to be God. And also, by saying he's the high priest, he's claiming to be some kind of spiritual authority in the life of Rome. 
And neither of these things should be recognized, and rightly, neither of these things were recognized by the Jewish nation. And in fact, these false claims were blasphemous and offensive to the Jews. And so Jesus, knowing that, as a Jew, utters some really profound words for them and for us when we consider our relationship to man-made governments. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They never saw it coming. By this statement, Jesus recognizes the legitimacy of, of human government. Jesus is not some anarchist coming to overthrow the establishment. What we've seen in our walk through Mark is that Jesus has ordained the family, Jesus has ordained the church, and with our text today, Jesus is ordaining human governments. Jesus is not evading the issue. He says, give back to Caesar, or in our case, give back to the government, the president, Uncle Sam, if you're from the United States. Give back to Caesar the things that belong to the government. Follow the laws of your land. Honoring God and honoring your government are not mutually exclusive. You can do both. You don't need to pick between one or the other. As Christians, you are expected to do both as long as it is theologically and biblically possible to do so. The Roman rule at this time was experiencing a level of peace and tranquility that it had never experienced before. And shortly after this text, it was all going to come crashing down. So at the time, the Jews of, of living in Roman captivity were experiencing a level of peace and tranquility. Um, they were experiencing some level of comfort. So it's reasonable to me at least, it seems reasonable that you are expected to pay for such privileges afforded to you. It's the same for us, right? We pay taxes for roads and schools, first responders. I'm trying to get out of the school tax because I homeschool now. Uh, but maybe the taxes could come to me as, since I started a school. Hey, uh, just kidding. Um, yeah, we're expected to pay for our privileges, we honor our government by giving the government what it is due. Nothing more than that, certainly nothing less. Here's one thing to keep in mind. God is sovereign over all, including the government. So it is important to keep in mind as we navigate these waters that we are not here by accident. People are not in power by accident. So we honor them by virtue of that and that alone until we can't. There's more on that in a second. Here's where I think we may get out of line, though, as uh, West Texas Bible Belt Christians. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, which in this case means taxes, then he says, give to God the things that are God's. What are the things that are God's? Here's the answer. Pause for dramatic effect. Everything, everything else. We give back to Caesar the things that are his, the coin with his inscription on it, taxes that are the government's right to levy. On the other hand, 
We give back to God the things that are God's. We, as humans, have God's inscription on us as people created in the image of God. So we render not just our Sundays to him. We render not ourselves to him when it is convenient for us, but we render our whole lives to God. We submit to his lordship. We submit our wants, our desires, our aspirations, our careers, our families, our relationships, our sexuality to him. There's also a missional component to this as well. We're not to be Christian nationalists. We're not to worship the flag. We're not to be nationalists before we are Christians. Our first loyalties are to Jesus, not the Constitution. Again, I don't want to be overly political. I think it's okay if you're like Lee Greenwood in here and you're proud to be an American. That's great. But first and foremost, you must recognize as a Christian, this is not your final stop. You are a stranger. You are an exile here in this country and on this earth by virtue of your position in God's family. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are destined for something better than a democracy. You are positioned for an inheritance in God's kingdom. And so the way you interact with human institutions, including but not limited to the government, must reflect a missional ethic of Jesus. You are designed, first and foremost, to give God glory and honor that is rightly due him. Listen, I don't want to be heavy-handed here. I know people and have been one of these people that spend more time with Fox News or whatever other news outlet I prefer that week or Twitter, or Facebook, then I am more committed to just resting in God's word and the promises of Jesus to me. It's a lot easier to complain about the things we don't like in our governments at the local level or the state level or the federal level. It's just a lot easier for me to complain about it than to pray for those people. It's a lot easier for me to complain then try my best to function as a believer in spite of it. I think a lot of our anxieties and a lot of our frustrations would lessen um, if we would just come to a place of, of surrender, of knowing that nothing, especially government stuff, governing authorities, are not in place outside of the will of God. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Like it or not, it's there by the sovereign will of the Lord. So consider this. Especially if you would consider yourself politically motivated or politically charged, which I think is good to be politically aware as believers. I wish more Christians would run for office and not just use Christianity as a platform to get votes. But that's for another sermon some other time. Maybe we'll look at two Corinthians together sometime later. Uh, that's, a, that's a throwback to 2016. Uh, so consider this. Because of the cross... 
because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the forgiveness of your sin, your first loyalties are not to the Constitution or to the President, but to the Holy Scriptures and to the King of Kings. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To be committed to God in everything we do, we must be reminded daily of the cross of Christ. Knowing that, Being reminded of that, remembering the sacrifice of Christ to you for the forgiveness of your sins, for the cleansing of your guilt, for the pardon of your shame and punishment, remembering that changes everything. It changes how you worship because you are free from fear of death and free from fear and free from guilt and shame. It changes how you pray. Because now you're free to approach God in confidence, knowing that you have been pardoned and have been redeemed. And it changes how you function in the church, because now you're not just showing up on Sundays and putting your best foot forward and putting this veneer of perfection on and doing the things that you think you're supposed to do. You are free to love and serve God daily because he has redeemed your whole life. You can follow him with your whole life, confessing your imperfections, confessing your shortcomings, repenting of your sin, and being free to follow Jesus. And it also changes how you interact with human institutions. As a Christian, as a part of your Christian witness, you are called to live in peaceful subjection under the government even if it is a pagan one. Paying taxes levied on you because it is the right of the government to do so. And listen, we will only engage in civil disobedience until uh, when the government prohibits me from following the commands of Scripture. Independence Day for the Christian is not the 4th of July. It's Easter. Easter, when Christ rose from the dead, declaring sin and death defeated once and for all. For the Christian, that means you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer enslaved to shame. You are no longer enslaved to fear. You are no longer enslaved to guilt. But you are now under the law of Jesus' grace and mercy to you. Through his death, He gives you life. If your faith and dependency is in him, this is you. The question is, are you rendering to God the things that are God's? Is Jesus getting your best? And not that you're perfect because sin persists in the world. that you belong to him and you're allowing him to change you day by day moment by moment into his image and his likeness is Jesus getting your best are you allowing Jesus to have your whole life 
Are you submitting your relationships to him? Are you submitting your careers to him? Are you submitting your desires to him? Or are you just offering up flattery to Jesus? Look, man, Jesus wants all of it. Jesus wants all of you. So walk in that freedom. Not first the freedom afforded to you as a citizen of of the U.S., but the freedom that was given to you through the blood and resurrection of the cross. Man, you are so deeply loved. You are so deeply valued. You are so deeply cherished. So Christian, live in light of that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Live in light of that. Let's pray.